I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, children, buckle up. We are going to have some fun today. <clears throat> and, of course, the reason I say that is because we are dialing the name difficulty up to 11. Not because they're that weird or anything. It's just some of these Eastern European names give me <laughs> give me indigestion or something as I try to struggle through them. You know you're in trouble when you're clicking on the Wikipedia say-it-to-me thing. So we are in 11th century Poland. And this one's not real gory, but it does have, if I have enough time, I'm trying to check my clock and stuff, so I was, hopefully we have enough time to get to it. It's got an interesting little conclusion to it that we might have some fun with. <clears throat> now, 11th century Eastern Europe becomes convoluted and difficult because the names and the places and the kings and who's duke of this and prince of that and king of whatever. So, for the most part, we are dealing with the king of Poland, Bolesla, Boleslaw, Boleslav, Boleslav. Something in that. It's literally spelled Boleslaw, all right? <laughs> I'm not going to call him Boleslaw, though, although I am very tempted. But Boleslaw is something in that ball, uh, ballpark is what his name is. He is either the bold or Boleslav the generous, depending, I guess, on you know what mood he was in that day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm only mostly kidding about that. He's an interesting character. And, and by the way, once again, I know I've covered this before, but real quick, you, you do know this is not like dissertation-level history, right? Okay, just making sure. I see you nodding. We are covering just enough to be dangerous to just kind of give you a feel for the story, and I encourage you guys, read on some of this stuff. It's You live in an interesting world with an interesting history, and you will be a better person for understanding it. So, Boleslav uh, reestablishes multiple churches, uh, the... The urban elite, and by elite I don't mean set apart, I mean the major metropolitan areas. He reestablishes their dioceses, rebuilds their churches. He also establishes several Benedictine monasteries in his kingdom. And yet, he's not really a popular fellow. By all accounts, he seems to be a quite competent king, but apparently, again, bold or generous, depending on the day. So what happens? Well, our, our hero of the story is Stanislas. Now, he is the first Polish-born saint of the Roman Catholic Church. Not that that matters. I just thought it was a cool note I wanted to throw in there for you. Well, Stanislas is, a, is from a poor, small Polish village, was a son of a nobleman, ends up getting educated, gets an education, uh, local education in and around uh, various places in Poland, eventually sent off to Paris for the completion of his schooling, which was not unusual during the 11th century. That was the, uh, the big school of the time. And makes his way back to Poland, where he uh, becomes renowned, actually, for his preaching, as well as having an influence in local politics. We're going to get to that in a minute. He becomes the Bishop of Krakow, now, that's important to the story because Krakow is currently the second largest city in Poland and one of the most ancient metropolitan areas of Poland. The city, as a city, dates back to the 7th century. That's the 600s. That's a long time ago. Because of that, it's important. It's, a, it's kind of a big deal. Now, 
talk about the fun little mixing and when you get through the Middle Ages, which we're uh, approaching the high Middle Ages here when you're talking about the 11th century, realize that with the feudal system, again, that most of these priests are, priests and bishops in many instances, are feudal lords. They own property. They have um, peasants that tend to the land. They, they get income. So as Bishop of Krakow, he is also Duke of Seiverts, and I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly or not, and you know what? I don't care. That is actually a distinction. The Bishop of Krakow will hold that, that duchy. He will be Duke in Poland until the 20th century, somewhere around the 1920s or the 1930s is how long this duopoly will occur. So if you were the Bishop of Krakow, you owned property by default of your office as part of the royal structure of the nation. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, mention that influence on local politics. When you're a bishop of one of the major metropolitan areas of a nation and you are a ranking duke, local politics takes on a new meaning. Depending on who you believe, Stanislaus runs a front of Boleslav either because of political intrigue or moral purity. Now, considering this is a guy known for his preaching and his uh, care for his uh, local um, parishioners, I'm going to err on the side of morality, but realize that there is a political component to this that can't be overlooked. Now, Stanislaus criticizes the king over his sexual immorality, apparently his infidelity. And this is, again, why I tell you to dig into these guys. There's some interesting questions about Boleslav and his, his uh, picadillos of the day. He was unmarried until he was 25 years old. That's weird in that world. Marriages of arrangement, marriages of convenience, marriages of political alliance for someone who's part of a royal family to make it into his mid-20s without somebody offering him up a daughter or his family arranging a marriage in order to strengthen an alliance or build something is very, very unusual. So, of course, because it's the modern world, we impart all sorts of lovely meaning to that. But there are some legitimate questions about the moral turpitude, to borrow a phrase, of Boleslav. Now, when you question the king's infidelity and immoral standing, that never really ends well, and it doesn't end well for Stanislaus, depending on how you look at things. He eventually goes so far as to excommunicate Boleslav, who in turn has basically a kangaroo court show trial where he accuses Stanislaus of treason, and there's a little bit of evidence that maybe Stanislaus was involved with the placing of another relative or attempting to place another relative on the throne. And, of course, Boleslav, since he's presiding and he's basically the judge, jury, and executioner of this trial, he finds Stanislaus guilty and sends soldiers to execute the penalty for treason, which in any country, anywhere, at any point, is death. So they find him at a church on the outskirts of Krakow, apparently performing the Mass. So he is presiding over communion and the offerings and everything that's going on there. The soldiers storm in, see what's going on, can't bring themselves to kill Stanislaus. <clears throat> 
So they go back to Boleslav. They report what happened. The king apparently flies into a rage, grabs a dagger himself, and rides out to this church, storms in, and mid-church service stabs the bishop of Krakow to death in front of the entire congregation. Huh. <laughs> One, if you're going to go, you might as well be going in the midst of a church service. Now, that's one thing. I know this was quick, and you're looking at your clocks going, wait a minute, we usually have a few more minutes of this. I get it. This is where it gets interesting. First, first lesson, Christian, may not end well here. Always ends well in eternity. Stand for what is right, always. Even if the world hates you, even if the world judges you, even if the world wants to kill you, you serve God, not this place. Now, the cool note on this is, this basically ends Boleslav's reign. He is shortly forced to flee. He finds refuge in Hungary. Apparently, now this is where we get into the legendary part, and this is, but this is very cool to me. <clears throat> he ends up in Rome where he is seeking absolution for his crimes. So he's lost the kingdom, he's, he's lost support, he's got no hope. The Whatever treasonous plot might have been cooking is successful. Apparently, the Pope commands that he travel as a penitent mute. He finds his way back to a monastery in Slovenia, where he apparently spends the rest of his days just doing work at the monastery. He basically becomes the monastic handyman of the place, where he dies, having received the absolution of the head of the monastery— having prayed for forgiveness, having done all of this. Now, the reason why I even include this is because not too long ago, they were doing some excavating work at the monastery, and there are graves that are purported to be the grave of Boleslav. And they were, uh, un he was uninterred, or at least whoever's in there, and there are bones of a man wearing Polish knight's armor from the 11th century. Is it Boleslav? I have no idea. But I do think it's kind of cool. The reason I think it's kind of cool is, Christian, this is one of the lessons we have to learn. The Holy Spirit will get a hold of who he will get a hold of. Now, Boleslav's forgiveness was not going to be found at the Pope, and is not going to be found at a monastery, and it was not going to be found at a priest. It was going to be found before Christ. And the fact that he was repentant, the fact that he was mournful for what he had done, shows a heart that is much more in line with Boleslav the generous than Boleslav the bold. Sin has a way of stirring up and building up and making you do horrible things. Recognize, Christian, that Christ's grace and mercy covers even that. That is why we can be bold. That is why we can be secure in our faith and in our proclamation, because we know that as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel, God is fruitful in building his kingdom, regardless of who the hearer might happen to be. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.